we turn our attention to Exodus 6, and in that exhortation to our elders and deacons, we are reminded of Moses' hesitancy. We ended chapter 5 last week in the book of Exodus with Moses sort of throwing up his hands and saying, if the people of Israel won't listen to me, what makes you think that Pharaoh would be foolish enough to listen to me? And in Exodus 6, we have the answer of God. Because this book is a reminder to us of the good news of the gospel. That even when we are hesitant, even when we are flat-out rebellious against God, God is powerful enough to save. He is the God who rescues, restores, and redeems. He is the one who provides the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so while Moses throws up his hands and, and asks, is this why you sent the people? I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, but all it's done is brought trouble upon us. Exodus 5 ends with the accusation from Moses to Pharaoh, you have not rescued your people at all. And so here we have the answer of God. Exodus 6, I'll begin at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clans, clans were Libni and Shimei. 
The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphon, and Sithri. Aaron married Elishaba, daughter of Amminadab and sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These were the Korahite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the, the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Let's now bow and ask God that he would make known to us the power of his word. God in heaven, we thank you that you hear us when we cry out to you. That you were the God who heard the prayers and pleadings of the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. That you are the God who hears us even now as we lift our voices, our lives, our hearts to you. Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would take the reading of your ancient word and show us that it is a living and active word. That there is gospel hope for us today. That in your word are, are challenges to our sinfulness, are answers to our questions. Because you are a God who remains active in our midst. So Lord, let us see in this word the ministry of Jesus, our Savior, your faithfulness to your promises. Father, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm sure there are parts of your job you would gladly pull out of your job description. Whether it's the repetitious tasks or maybe a difficult assignment, there are certainly things you are required to do that, well, you'd be glad if somebody else just got it done for you. Once again, Moses makes clear that he'd be glad, well, really, for anyone else to do the job that's been assigned to him. His first encounter with Pharaoh, sent by God from Midian, brought back to Egypt, goes into Pharaoh's court and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no. And actually things get worse because Pharaoh increases the labor on the people of Israel. They remain enslaved. So Moses was given not only a difficult task, he had to convince the most powerful man in the known world to willingly free his enslaved laborers. It was also a task at which Moses thinks he's already failed. He tried. It didn't work. I gave it my best effort, but I'm done. It's time for somebody else to do it. Such that Moses' answer when, when trouble comes upon the people at the end of chapter 5 is, God, you have not rescued your people at all. And so Yahweh provides an answer. He says, I will rescue my people. 
and I will use you, Moses, to rescue my people. God's answer is clear there in verse 1 of chapter 6. When Moses says, you haven't rescued your people at all, then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Oh, you, you thought that, that we've stumbled to this position. No, no, I'm just getting started with Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, not only will, verse 1 tells us, not only will Pharaoh let my people go, Pharaoh's going to push them out of the land because he's going to see how powerful I am. He's going he's to need to get rid of them. He's going to send them away with, with the treasures of Egypt. See, God has come down to rescue his people. Well, actually, that's what Moses already knows. That's what Moses learned when, he, when God met him at the burning bush in Midian. God's promise, I will rescue my people. And so God is just repeating that. I am going to rescue my people. And then God makes himself known to Moses. He says, look at verse 2, I am Yahweh. The capitalization of, of Lord there is a translator's note that this is God's covenant name. If it's Lord with just a capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, well, then it's just the, the common name for Lord. But, but in all capitals, this is God's name. I am Yahweh. And notice how he repeats that, not just in verse 2, but it comes in verse 6. It's bracketed then the, uh, with all that God will do by, by the end of verse 8. I am Yahweh. I am the God of the covenant. I am the God who is in relationship with you. I'm not some distant God or some foreign God. I am Yahweh. You know my name. I'm right here with you. I'm the, I'm the God who made, verse 3 tells us, promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. They knew me as God Almighty. And then verse 3 seems to imply that, that while Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know God's name, Yahweh. Because the way the translation that I have in front of me, or maybe the one that's in front of you, it says, I'm the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is verse 3. As God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, my Bible has a, actually a footnote here where the translators say, well, you can just as easily translate that verse because, well, you don't have punctuation like we do in modern documents and ancient documents. It could just as well be a rhetorical question. Did I not make myself known to them by the name the Lord? The very name that I'm using with you is the same name that I used with them. Because the name Yahweh was, was used a hundred, more than a hundred times in the book of Genesis, including back in, in Genesis 4 when we are with with Adam's grandson, and we're told that at that time, men began to call on the name of Yahweh. And so it seems that, that it's not this is the first time they've heard that sound, or that they knew that that was God's name, but that what God is saying is, they only knew me by promise, not by action. They don't really know what it is to call me Yahweh. I made a covenant with them. But right now, I'm going to show you what it means to call me Yahweh, for you to understand the significance of who I am. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob looked ahead to the promises of God, but they had not yet seen the fulfillment of those promises. The promises that God would make them into a great nation, that God would give them a land, that God would be with them. They, they only had glimpses of, of those promises. See, and you and I understand the, the challenge of living between the promise of God and its fulfillment. We know, because the scriptures tell us, that God will one day wipe away every tear. But we still find our pillows soaked at night. We know that one day Jesus will bring judgment against all. But it seems like evildoers escape justice today. We know because the word of God tells us that Jesus will return, but there are times that we stand here, here and now, and feel like we have been abandoned or left alone. Remember, God says, I am Yahweh. I'm the God who's entered into relationship with you. I'm the God who is here to act on your behalf. Do you want to know what it means to call me Yahweh? Just wait and see. See what I will do for you. And you and I are actually in a much stronger position to understand who God is than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. Because we will walk with Moses through the book of Exodus. We will see Yahweh prove his power. We will see him show his mighty hand, his outstretched arm to rescue his people. And so God repeats that phrase in verse 6 when he tells Moses, now this is what you're going to go tell the Israelites. Tell them, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. In, in verses 6, 7, and 8, it's clear there is one person who is going to do the work of salvation. And it's obvious even in, in, in reading it. You just see the, the pronoun, I. Yahweh steps forward and says, do you know who's going to do this? I will. Seven times in these verses, he says, I will do this for you. He says, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to you. I will give it to you as your possession. I will be your God. There is a clear emphasis in the, in the very words that Moses is meant to relay to the people on the power and action of God. Their hope doesn't rest in the fact that, well, you know, Moses had really good training growing up. I think he's the man to send to speak with Pharaoh. No. Nowhere here is, is the explanation given that, well, Moses is, is, is the guy who's going to do this. No, who is the actor in the book of Exodus? It's made clear here in Exodus 6 that Yahweh is the one who will act on behalf of his people. The emphasis is on God's character, on God's actions. And show it, it shows us the scope of salvation, these, these promises that God makes. Language that he will rescue and redeem, that he will buy, he will pay the price to buy them out of slavery. Language of relationship with God, the promise that, that they will be his own people, that he will be their God. The the promise of blessing, that he is going to give them the land. The, the scope of salvation is not just, hey, you're kind of off the hook for the bad things that you've done. 
No, salvation is even bigger than that. Yes, God frees us from our sin. God redeems us by paying the price to buy us out of slavery to sin. But then God doesn't leave us on our own. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. He calls us into relationship with him so that Yahweh is by our side. And then he is the God who gives us promises. The promised land of the Old Testament, a a picture for us of the eternal kingdom of God, the coming kingdom. See, This language shows us, though, not only the scope of our salvation, how big it is, it also shows us the power for our salvation. Yahweh alone saves. You don't contribute to your salvation. You don't accomplish your own salvation. Who is the one who acts? Yahweh. I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will take you as my own people. I will give you the promises of salvation. See, to be told that you cannot accomplish your salvation is humiliating. Because whenever I make a mistake, I want to be the one to make it right. Because what will that do? Show that I don't always make the same mistakes. And I can sort of justify myself. I mean, that, that wasn't really, I mean, that's not how I normally act. Let me, you know, let me make it right. Let me fix it. Whether it's a small mistake or a big one, I want to be the one to redeem myself so that I feel good about myself. So to be told, Kevin, you can't do it. You can't save yourself is on the one hand completely humiliating, but it's also freeing. I'm set free from the challenge of trying to chase after my own redemption. Of trying to feel like, have I now done enough to make up for the things that I did wrong? Have I, have I piled up enough, an, enough goodwill with the person that I previously harmed that they, they now look at me and, and what they see is, is the goodness in me and not the, the bad thing that I had done to them? Which with something small, well, maybe I could accomplish and feel like I finally achieved it. But in the big mistakes of life, I realized I would never be able to do enough. And yet admitting I can't do enough can bring freedom. But only if there is one who can save. Because otherwise, if I have to accomplish my own salvation, and I, and I chase after it, and I exhaust myself doing it, but I just give up, That's hopelessness. If, after trying to chase after my own salvation, I realize, oh no, I could never do this. Oh, but there is good news. There is one who has done it. My salvation rests not in my own accomplishments, but in the very promises of God. Then I can, in certain hope, turn to God. I can turn from sin. I can admit I'm helpless to save myself, but find that to be a, a forgiving, or a freeing admission because I receive forgiveness from God. He is the one who redeems. He is the God who rescues. And so having been forgiven, well, now I can ask for forgiveness, not needing to justify myself to you, but offering you the same hope that I have that I have been made right, not because of what I have done, but because of who God is and what he has accomplished.
Yahweh, is the God of the covenant. He is the God of promise. Yahweh rescues and redeems. Yahweh's actions and character should have provided comfort to Moses because Yahweh's purpose and power are on display. And yet Moses' answer to this, when given the command in verse 11 to go back to tell Pharaoh, let the Israelites go, Moses again has an excuse. Verse 12, if the Israelites won't listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? I mean, the, the very people predisposed to hear your name and rem- be, be thankful that you are the God who is now going to act on your covenant, that you've remembered your covenant, you're going to keep your covenant, they don't even believe you. Why would Pharaoh listen to me? I'm a man of faltering lips. I'm unable to make clear your purposes. And then suddenly from verse 12 to verse 13, there's this like radical shift of gears. Moses asked the question, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And verse 13 says, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites. And suddenly we have a list of difficult to pronounce Hebrew names that seems like, don't look over here, pay attention to this. Like a magician trying to divert your attention away from what's at hand so that you you focus on something else. As if God doesn't have an answer to Moses' question, we suddenly jump into a genealogy. Well, I'll just bore them with this. Because historically, we, we might have expected a genealogy that's common in the ancient world to tell the ancestors of, of, of someone important. But we probably would have expected it back in chapter 2 when we first met baby Moses. If Moses is going to be a key character, then, well, then right at the beginning of the story, we'd expect, well, here would be the genealogy. And yet commentators say that that the genealogy is perfectly placed in chapter 6 because it is actually the answer to Moses' question. God, why in the world are you going to send me and Aaron to do this? At every point of the way, Moses has, has tried to come up with an excuse here. And God is answering the question. Well, let me remind you, Moses, what I have already done. Let me remind you, Moses, why I chose you for this task. Because God is the God of covenant. He's the one who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we meet the sons of Jacob, the leaders of the tribes of Israel. But, but this is obviously an incomplete genealogy. We only actually get the, the names of three of the sons. We don't get all 12, which I'm thankful for as the reader of those names, that the, we didn't have to go through Uh, nine more. And actually, the first two, Reuben and Simeon, we only get just a quick reminder. It's as if we're we're just sort of being placed on the the family tree. Okay, we're going to go in order. The the sons of Jacob, the, the sons of Leah. But we only need to get to the third son, Levi, before we accomplish our purpose of tracing the family lineage of Aaron and Moses. And there are hints in this in this genealogy of things to come, the rebellion of Korah, which will take place in the wilderness, the failure of the sons of Aaron as they sin against God. But, but here we are reminded that God's saving purposes take place with real people in real time in history. 
But God has made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to keep it through the great-great-grandchildren. And Aaron's ancestry then, as the one who will be the, as brother to Moses, the spokesman for Moses, Aaron's ancestry then is traced for us all the way back to Abraham. He is part of the covenant people of God. He is a true son of Levi. He will be set apart by God here as a priest of God. Now the genealogy stops with the third son, Levi. And as a preacher, or maybe just as a reader, we we might want it to continue to the fourth son, at least the fourth son, Judah. Well, because Judah will be the great-great-great-great-grandfather of King David. And King David will be the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. And so we would get a reminder of, of the way that God will work through the Levites to mediate on behalf of God's people, but that God will ultimately provide salvation through the line of Judah. Well, but actually, we, we get it. It's in verse 23. Judah's name isn't used, but we're told that Aaron married Elisheba, and we're given the name of her father, and brother. She is the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. Oh, we'll see those names again. In the book of Ruth, they are the ancestors, the grandfathers of David. We'll see those names again in the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke. For they are men who are in the line of Judah which leads us to Jesus, the Savior. And so we have here a glimpse of gospel hope. Yahweh will bring salvation to his people. He is raising up Levitical priests to lead them, to mediate. He is promising, ultimately, a sacrifice of his own son for his people. And so the genealogy is actually an answer to Moses' concern. Why me? Why now? Why do this? God says, because I'm Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of the patriarchs, the God who makes promises to you. And yet Moses doubts Yahweh's purpose. Moses doubts that he's the man for this job. But Yahweh's purposes will not fail. God will accomplish his salvation. He is the one who stands and says, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. See, we have the list in in Exodus 6 of what God will do. Of what God will accomplish. We know God's purposes. We know the will of God. And we've already pointed forward to the ministry of Jesus But the book of Hebrews chapter 10 reminds us that Jesus is the one who who looks back to the promises of God and stands and says, I will accomplish it. Hebrews 9 verse 7, Jesus the Christ, when he came into the world, he says this, I have come to do your will, O God. When Yahweh says, I will rescue you, I will redeem you. I will give you the promise of salvation. I will be your God. Jesus answers, your will be done. 
In Jesus, the the future promises of God are cemented and anchored in history, accomplished through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Jesus came. Jesus gave his life. Jesus reigns as the king of glory. And Jesus is coming again. You will be rescued. You will be redeemed. Yahweh is your God. You are his own if you've put your trust in him. Did you hear the news out of North Macedonia this week? All right, some of you are thinking, where's North Macedonia? Okay, it's, here's a little geography lesson. It's north of Macedonia. And you know where Macedonia is because you've read your New Testament. You know the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica. Well, it's today modern-day northern Greece, but the ancient region of Macedon and North Macedonia is north of Macedonia. They're in southeastern Europe. In North Macedonia, an 11-year-old girl with Down syndrome was bullied by classmates after parents complained about her classroom disruptions. On Monday, President Stevo Pandorovsky traveled to Little Embla's city, met with her family to hear the challenges they face daily. And then the president took the little girl by hand and walked her to school. He used his presidential power to come alongside a helpless child in need. Now, maybe you think there are more important stories coming out of Eastern Europe this week. Or maybe you're you're skeptical that, that you doubt any politician's motivations. But I want to say it's hard to imagine a more appropriate display of presidential power than to come alongside the vulnerable and the harassed. Yahweh takes you by the hand. His mighty hand wrapped around yours. He says, I will free you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Yahweh steps alongside his people to use his power for their rescue. And in the ministry of Jesus, our Savior, God has done even more for us. Jesus gave his life to secure our freedom, to purchase our redemption, and now we have the comfort of God's guiding hand, his outstretched arm, God's power on display in our rescue. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope of your word. The challenge that that we must admit we are helpless to rescue ourselves, to redeem ourselves. But in that, the great freedom to find our hope in Jesus alone. Lord, remind us that you are our God, that we are your people, that you are the God who rescues and redeems. Lord, for those of us who know this truth, Let us live in the freedom that comes through your gospel. 
Lord, for those that have listened without faith in Jesus Christ, grant now the faith to believe. Let them turn away from sin, admit their helplessness, and find salvation in the work you have accomplished. Through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our Lord. He is our rescuer and redeemer, and so we pray in his name. Amen.